Well, Rachel and I are very privileged to, to be sharing this time with you this morning. As you can see from the screen, the title of our presentation is The Sixth Competency. And most of you are, I'm sure, familiar with the ACGME and their six competencies, things such as professionalism, patient care, medical knowledge. And the sixth one is systems-based practice. The Bible says in Luke uh, 16, verse 8, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And you remember that comes from the parable that Jesus told about the unjust (coughs) steward. And the point he was making is that worldly people spend more time, more energy, more thought on worldly matters, temporary things, than Christians do on eternal matters. And it might be true that that's true even for medical missionary work. And we don't want the ACGME to be smarter than we are about things that really matter. And so what we're going to talk about today is systems-based spiritual practice and try to learn some lessons that hopefully will be helpful to each one of us in our individual lives and our individual practice situations in spiritual care. Why don't we bow our heads for prayer once more uh, before we begin. Dear God, I ask that your Holy Spirit will be present here and that we will learn lessons, perhaps even lessons from the ACGME, about how we can more effectively win souls for you, be an influence for heaven in the lives of each one of our patients. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone know what that picture is? It's a painting. There's got to be someone here who knows the name of this painting. Famous painting by Thomas Eakins in the 1875. He painted this picture of a 70-year-old professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College. This painting is called The Gross Clinic. Some of you, uh, and Gross Clinic for more than one reason. That is Dr. Samuel D. Gross. He was probably the most influential surgeon of his generation. He was 20th president of the American Medical Association. He was the father and one of the founders of the American Surgical Association. And he had a problem. In fact, he had a systems-based problem about 45% of the patients that he operated on died. Now, if 45% of the patients I operated on died, that'd be a pretty big problem. I'd lose my license, you know? Can anybody see a systems-based problem from the picture? It's a little bit dark. Can anybody see a problem there? No gloves. Anything else? No mask. Okay. Anything else? No gown. Well, in fact, he does have a coat on. That's probably the same coat that he wore in off the street. Okay? Exactly. Dr. Gross had a systems problem. He was well aware of the work of Joseph Lister, who had been preaching in Europe for over 20 years by the time this painting was uh, commissioned, about Listerism, using carbolic acid to sterilize instruments, wash your hands, wash the area of the incision, and he specifically rejected that. In fact, he wrote in the Journal of the American Medical Association that no one on this side of the Atlantic takes Listerism very seriously. 
And lest you think that systems-based problems were limited to the 1870s, Rachel is going to give you two specific examples that she is familiar with that have happened very recently. So a child presented to the pediatric emergency department with, he was in shock. He had a known adrenal corticotropic hormone deficiency. The pediatric hospitalist was immediately contacted, admitted the child, and ordered stress-dose solumedrol. Multiple nurses involved in the care, multiple physicians. Child was transported to the pediatric ward, continued to deteriorate, and eventually had to go to the pediatric ICU. Now, the child was admitted about 11 p.m. At 6 a.m., it was discovered that the stress dose of solumedrol had never been administered. The stress dose of solumedrol was then subsequently given. Child immediately improved and was actually able to be discharged that evening. What was the system's issue? Well, it turns out that it wasn't actually that there were multiple physicians, multiple nurses, although I'm sure that contributed to the problem. Turns out that the computer that the physician used to order the medication automatically scheduled the stress dose of solumedrol to be given at 6 a.m. that morning, as opposed to 11 p.m. when it was ordered. So the system's issue was the computer automatically scheduling the medication for the wrong time. Second example, nurse on a busy med surge unit checks her MAR at about 12 p.m. to verify medications ordered. She notices that the physician has ordered hydralazine to be given for systolic blood pressure greater than 150. At 2 p.m., the physician comes by, cancels the order. At 3 p.m., the nurse goes in to do routine vitals, discovers that the patient's systolic blood pressure is 180, goes to the Pyxis, obtains hydralazine from the Pyxis system, and then administers it to the patient. It's not until she's charting the uh, medication given that she discovers the order was canceled one hour prior. What's the system error there? Well, you could talk about communication and other things, but the bottom line, the Pyxis dispensed a medication that had been discontinued. What were the outcomes? In the first case, the hospital fixed the EMR system. In the second case, the nurse was fired. Will firing the nurse fix the issue? No and those types of errors continued to occur. So what is um, systems-based practice? Well, this is straight from the ACGME. It's the ability to use system resources to optimize medical care. Use the system that you're within to improve care. And those of you who work with EMR systems know how that can be used. For instance, you can put together order sets to make sure you don't forget critical parts of uh, post-operative orders. You can put hard stops in the system so you can't order two medications that have severe drug-drug interactions. Uh, there's clinical pathways you can put in place. One particular example that I like as a surgeon, those of you who know surgeons know all of us think we can operate faster than we really can. And so when you're scheduling a case, sometimes that leads to friction. Uh, in the Kaiser system out in California, well, in California, uh, where I worked as a resident, if I scheduled a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, the computer system would look at my last 10 cases, average the time, and well, that's how much time in the uh, operating room I got. OK? 
Okay? All of those arguments were eliminated. So those are just a few examples of systems. What about spiritual practice, however? What, what is systems-based practice when it comes to spiritual care for patients? Well, I guess the ability to use system resources to optimize spiritual care, but here's the problem. How do you know when you've optimized spiritual care? We think, I think we need to take a one step back. If you're a family practice doctor trying to evaluate your care for diabetes, maybe you'll look at hemoglobin A1C levels. If you're a surgeon looking at your outcomes for surgery, maybe you'll look at, I don't know, surgical site infections. If you're an oncologist, maybe you'll look at five-year disease-specific survival. We're familiar with outcomes for medical care. But what about spiritual care? Rachel's actually going to take a microphone around, and I'd like I'd like to hear from at least two or three, maybe four people from the audience, what are some goals that you have either thought about or maybe you have set for yourself for providing spiritual care, medical missionary work? What are some goals that you have set for yourself in providing spiritual care for your patients? Rachel has a microphone. Please just raise your hand. Don't be shy. Right over here. Rachel, right over here. Raja. Um, when Christ is in the heart, you cannot contain it but share. So actually, I am um, in constant prayer all day that the Lord opens the, not just gives me divine appointments, but that he provides the right words, the right approach, uh, the right patient. And it's amazing what he's doing. A patient like would, would come in totally irate, that she has not seen me before and never ever before she'd come totally crazy and demands that she only gets uh, she uh, that medicare would pay the whole bill then uh, she asked my office manager well uh, would you just bill for medicare you would waive my my pay and he said uh, well let me talk to dr tuma and he comes to me he says dr tuma she's crazy i haven't done anything to her she's just crazy i said wave her 20 percent bring her in she's hurting i have to meet her and after i met her and she was again argumentative and just whoa 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 and i kept my calm and i told her i can see that you're hurting she said yes a lot i said i'm so sorry i i can tell you one thing i have one thing to tell you Jesus loves you, and he's, he's given so much for you. And I, and I told her my personal experience, what the Lord has done in my life. And so um, she softened tremendously. And at the end of the visit, she goes and it's, uh, was so sweet to the office manager. He came and told me, what did you tell her? She's so sweet to me. <laughs> Christ does it all. Yeah, that's great. So that's Thank a good you. example of how to uh, calm down someone. What are some other goals that you have set for yourself? Rachel in the back there. Some goals that you've set for yourself in medical missionary care. Yeah, and Aaron James, uh, I'm at Bluegrass Clinic in Stanford. We're a, we're a primary care practice, family medicine, and basically one of the goals we set is that the patient will not really be able to experience optimal health without an introduction to the creator, the giver of, health, of life and health. And so we're, we're trying to integrate that deliberately into the entire, in the entire spectrum of care, whether it be in the in the health education programs that we do, always speaking to the creationist view and the fact that, uh, you know, you have an obligation to the creator as the one who created you and health is an act of stewardship. And so essentially it, it kind of gets integrated into everything that we do, whether it be praying with a patient, which is obviously a part of it, but also just 
just mention the creator and the, and the fact that your creator is an integral part of it. So it becomes a part of culture of the entire practice. That's great. Okay, thank you. It's yeah, great. Thanks. Some culture change. One more. There was one right here. Oh, okay. We'll make that two more. Yes. Try to be quick. Uh, for my practice, it is about taking the focus away from the problems and the issues that the patients are having and having them look to the one who is able to solve all the issues so that at the end of the encounter when they leave and they, they can say, thank you, God, that is my goal. Okay, so every single patient will recognize where it comes from. One more real quick here, dear. Sir. My name is Donna Cooper Dockery from McAllen, Texas. I'm an internist. So my goal is to intentionally expose the patient to my belief, to Christ. So what we're doing, we have a spiritual healing class at the office, both in Spanish and English. We have three per week. The patients are invited to join. We have patients that have visited our church and are ready for baptism. Right. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you for, for all of you who shared. Those are some very good goals. What I would like to share with you is, again, straight from the idea of systems-based practice and quality improvement. If you are thinking about a goal for medical practice that you're going to set for yourself in providing care for a patient, you need that goal to be SMART. And there are a lot of other acronyms that you could come up with. This is straight out of the quality improvement uh, work that we do at, um, at uh, UTC, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Needs to be specific. Can't be pretty vague. Needs to be very specific. Needs to be measurable. Attainable. If it's not attainable, you'll give up. It needs to be relevant to what it is you're trying to do. And finally, I believe very strongly it needs to be time-bound. If you don't set a specific time that you're going to sit down and see if you met your goal, you'll never know if you met it. You'll just keep going and going, and maybe you'll never sit and think, maybe what I'm doing isn't really working toward the goal that I'm trying to uh, set. So what Rachel and I are going to do for the rest of our time together, we're going to talk through four different practice settings. Rachel is going to speak about her time as a hospitalist and her current uh, job as uh, working in urgent care. I'm going to talk about my office side of my practice and then also surgery. And we'll share a few examples of some goals we set for ourselves. We'll share successes, hopefully, and also share some failures. And our hope is that each one of you in many different practice settings will be able to take something away that you can apply to your own practice setting. Hospitalists face a very unique challenge for witnessing. It's often shift work. The shifts can vary from four hours to seven day stretches depending on the institution. Most of the time, your patients are with you from one to seven days. And at least in pediatrics, most patients you, I never see again. If you're at a teaching hospital, you may work with residents, which actually decreases even further your patient interaction. There are some advantages with being a hospitalist, however. Um, as a hospitalist, you have a lot more contact with floor nurses. You have face time with consultants from other specialties that you don't get in the outpatient world. You also have an opportunity, whether it's positive or negative, of interacting more closely with hospital administration. These people, I believe, are often neglected in our evangelism and sharing Christ, but they need Christ just as much as our patients. One example of a SMART goal for outreach to patients 
could be to provide a verbal and written invitation to a community health program that's sponsored by your local church to any patient with a lifestyle issue, such as high blood pressure, obesity, high cholesterol. Your specific goal could be to see at least one patient attend a function in a six-month period. That's something you can then measure and see whether it's effective. An example of a SMART goal with fellow colleagues could be to invite at least one subspecialist over for dinner every two months with the goal of finding at least one person with a spiritual interest in a three-year period that you actually are able to start Bible studies with. Now, I've worked as a hospitalist for five years, whoops, and I freely admit I miserably failed in the goals I set, miserably. And I reevaluated my system, and I realized it's because I was working very part-time. I'd work a shift here and then a shift there, and I just had no continuity, so it was difficult to establish a relationship with anybody. I have remedied that. I now work in the urgent care setting. But while I was working as a hospitalist, I still felt I needed to be involved in evangelism and health outreach, so I chose to get involved with my community outside of the hospital. And so I set those types of goals. I think those of us in, who have an office and work in office-based practice, especially primary care physicians, have probably the greatest opportunities for medical missionary work. There's at least two reasons for that. One is longitudinal care. I have, can't count the number of family practice doctors who I've talked with who have taken care of at least four generations in one family, four different generations of patients. That's an incredible opportunity to build a lot of trust within a family group. Also, if you happen to be in private practice or you're in a small group, you have near complete control over your systems of care that you set up. And we'll talk about some of those. So Rachel and I were at Loma Linda about two years ago, and we um, shared some similar lectures to this, and we talked about some goals that we were setting for ourselves. I was just starting out in practice, and these are some goals I set for myself. Maybe they're very idealistic, but um, anyway, I hope they were smart goals in any case. I wanted to have a devotional or a prayer before every single clinic with my staff. I wanted to screen 100% of my patients for lifestyle and spiritual issues. I wanted to invite every single patient who did have a lifestyle issue to uh, dinner with the doctor. You'll hear Rachel and I reference that a lot. It's a monthly lifestyle program at our church. And my goal was that 5% of those I invited would actually attend. And finally, I wanted to start some sort of home Bible study, and the goal was that 5% of those who came to the lifestyle program a couple times, you know, I'd form a relationship with them, and then they would in turn uh, come to some sort of home Bible study that uh, Rachel and I would start. So those were my goals, and we'll see how that worked out for me. Let's start with the office-based setting. I know almost all of you do this already. If you work in an office, I'm sure most of you in your waiting room have some magazines out there on spiritual matters, and some of you probably even have paintings up on the walls, maybe Nathan Green-style paintings that combine spiritual themes with uh, medical care and get patients thinking along those lines. Uh, I know I set up a, uh, some music for my dad's office uh, many years ago uh, in Greenville, Tennessee. And how many of you have never heard of Life and Health Network? Anybody never heard of it? A couple people. Okay, those of you, all of you who raised your hand, see Todd Guthrie right afterwards, and um, get educated about Life and Health Network. This is an excellent opportunity, if possible, 
to put on a television out in your uh, waiting area and get patients thinking about spiritual themes. That's easy. That's all basic. But what we need to do is think systems-based and take it to the next level. Rather than randomly putting out some nice spiritual magazines in the waiting area, think about what interventions you have available in your community for your patients. And I'll give you an example from, uh, from my setting. Um, those of you who are familiar with Wildwood know that uh, Health and Healing is the journal Wildwood puts out. Wildwood is right down the road from me. So I have several different journals from them, and any patient who picks up one of those journals gets information about Wildwood Lifestyle Center, especially if they have any sort of lifestyle concerns. Any patient who picks up a Stop Smoking magazine goes down a pathway that I'll show you in just a moment. It's a pathway of care for patients who are smoking. Uh, I put something about debt out there. Rachel and I right now are piloting a uh, Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University seminar with a, a couple at our church, and the goal would be in the future we'll have our church do some financial planning seminars that will then invite our patients to, every single one who picks up one of those magazines. And finally, there's several magazines about fighting cancer, losing weight, etc., and all of those patients get an invitation to dinner with the doctor. So think of your systems that you have in place to care for patients and make sure that the magazines you're putting out there correspond to those and make sure you're following up if you happen to see which ones the patients pick up. Sorry, I can't see here. Those of you who are in private practice probably have the ability to change your intake forms. I know all of us have a variety of intake forms to screen for smoking, diet, psychiatric or relationship needs or spiritual needs. In my setting, I can't modify that form and so I have to make that up in other ways. When the MA or RN is rooming the patient for you, again, I, I came into a practice where there are already several MAs who have been doing colorectal work for quite some time. They can tell me before I walk in the room, this patient has had a fissure for the last two weeks, they've already failed fiber therapy, and they want an operation. I'm like, okay, sign them up. Well, I go in there and talk with them. You know, it's, they already know all that. But what about spiritual care? How many of us have trained our nurses and our MAs specifically to inquire about spiritual matters so that when they come out from rooming a patient, they can tell us, this patient is suffering from depression because they just lost their child a year ago, and this is the anniversary of their death. They wonder if God exists, and they've been to three, these different churches over the last few. I mean, how many of us are doing that? I know I'm not, but that's an example of what we should be doing to set in place systems of spiritual care. I will say that my nurse does an excellent job of this. I didn't train her. She was already good at it. And she comes out of the room and, says, and can tell me, you know, this patient came to see you specifically because they heard that you pray with your patients, and that's why they wanted to see you. And we need to think, think systems-based and have our MAs and our nurses trained to identify these needs before we even walk in the room. My observation about physicians is we all develop pathways of care, if you will. For any common disease that you see in your clinic, you develop a short, you know, 30-second to a minute spiel that you give that goes through briefly in a simple manner the pathophysiology of the disease, talks about the treatment, and finally ends, do you have any questions? I mean, we all do that. We need to think systems based on how we can use these pathways of care to steer patients into spiritual discussions. I'll give you a couple examples um, from my practice. Turned out it's very easy for me in one regard. It, it, it just so happens that pretty much every single disease that I see commonly, diverticular disease, hemorrhoids, fecal incontinence, uh, colon cancer, they're all caused by not eating enough fiber. And this is very useful. How many of you know what kind of food has fiber in it? <laughs> what kind of food has fiber in it? 
it turns out plants have fiber in them, and how much, how much fiber is in any animal product you care to name? Zero. So every single patient I see pretty much gets a 30-second lecture on the advantages of a plant-based diet. And we extend this beyond their hemorrhoids to also talk about their diabetes and their high blood pressure, et cetera. It doesn't take long. But then that leads into further discussions. This is the fiber form I give them. And it, I do ask them what their Bristol stool scale is. And I ask them every single time so I know if they're getting enough fiber. They think it's hilarious. <laughs> what about smoking cessation? Every single patient who comes into my office, I ask them if they want to quit smoking, if, if they smoke. And, uh, <laughs> and it turns out they all want to quit. And so the next question is, great, give me your cigarettes. And then you find out who really wants to quit. And it's not all of them, but those who are willing to give me their cigarettes and their lighter right then and there, I have a specific pathway of care that we go down. All I do is print off the PDF of the old five-day plan to quit smoking off the internet. I got it from University of Wisconsin Healthcare System. They still use it as their preferred system. And so I just print it out, and we go over it with the patient, and I have a secret weapon. You want to see it? You couldn't hear it, but that's Amy and Michael. And uh, I take cigarettes home with me and the lighter, and we alternate who gets to throw away what, because they argue about that a little bit. And Amy just threw away the lighter, and Michael just threw away some cigarettes, and then we pray that Jesus will help that person quit smoking. And you video, he actually videos them throwing it away and then sends that video to the patient. Yeah. One patient thought that was such a good idea, she got all of her three kids to make uh, videos as well. And all throughout the first several days, she was just watching videos all day long. Mom, quit smoking. Mom, quit smoking. <laughs> it works really well. Finally, dinner with the doctor. Um, this is a, just an example flyer. This goes every month. And every single patient who has any lifestyle concern, I don't have time to give them an entire lecture on diabetes during a, you know, a short office visit for hemorrhoids or fissure or something of that nature. But they all get a flyer, and I encourage all of them to come. And we'll talk about that in uh, just a moment here. Finally, follow-up. Again, we're trying to set SMART goals. And if you don't document, you'll have no idea whether or not you met your goals. It's important to do that. I'll give you an example of a failure, and that's dinner with the doctor. Remember, my goal is that how many of my patients would go to that? Five percent. I've probably seen, I don't know, 900 patients my first year in practice, and I sat down and looked at my numbers, and I probably invited about 250 of those to dinner with the doctor. So first of all, that's a problem. That number's low. Zero of those patients actually came to the event. So I felt bad about that, and I evaluated my system of care. There were a variety of reasons for that. First, I didn't always have a flyer to give them. So I've worked with, um, with those who are actually running that event to make sure I have the flyers earlier. Second, it's at a distance from my office. Many patients probably don't want to drive there. Third, some patients I forgot to ask. And um, fourth, it's not always me giving the lecture. Frequently, it's another physician and may not have something to do with why it is they're actually seeing me. And so I've changed my system of care. Now, my MA, when they room the patient, is going to give every single patient a flyer, make sure we always have them available. Uh, in the future, I need to run a program myself, probably from within my clinic, to actually get patients to come. Uh, and so those are some of the changes that I've made. Uh, it's not all failure, though. I'm really happy with um, praying with staff. Rachel will talk about this in a moment, because she's done a better job and taken it to the next level. But Praying with staff is very powerful, and it's become a, um, a very meaningful time because uh, several of my MAs have had serious, um, serious life events. Um, 
parents that are having strokes and struggling with addictions and things of that nature. And uh, so it's become a very meaningful time for us. And I do think that we're praying 100% of the time. And smoking cessation, I'm actually pretty excited about that. I don't give any drugs. I don't do any intensive lifestyle counseling like you could get within a more intense stop smoking environment. All I do is give them a PDF document, talk with them for five to 10 minutes, and take their cigarettes home and throw them away and pray. And currently, anyway, about 50 to 60% of my patients are able to stop smoking and sustain that at least out for two or three months. I have not measured long-term outcomes, but that's pretty good for a minimal amount of effort, okay? Um, Rachel's gonna talk about urgent care. So currently, I'm working two to three shifts a week at an urgent care. And this is the reason I'm now working at an urgent care. Um, as a hospitalist, it was just the schedule was too chaotic for our family, much as I enjoyed it. But I am enjoying the consistent schedule, and I'm very excited that with the consistent work environment, it's allowed me to actually execute some SMART goals. So with urgent care, it's shift work, it's acute care. I don't control, um, excuse me, it's acute care, and I don't have control over my office setting. I'm an employee. I also have minimal long-term follow-up. The patients are in and they're out and they follow up with their pediatrician. But I do have very consistent interactions with my staff. So I've actually made it my goal to reach my staff. So my first goal was to provide an invitation to church event to staff, which for me is a nurse and a secretary, with the goal of at least one attending one event in a six-month period. My second goal was to pray before every shift with my staff. So goal number one, I met actually in three months. One of my secretaries attended dinner with the doctor with her boyfriend and really enjoyed it and said she was going to continue attending. Goal number two, I met after one month. Now goal number two was great because I work for a Christian organization and they actually encourage you to pray with your staff before work. Even though most physicians actually don't do that, um, it was at least encouraged, so there was a precedent set. I've met my goals now, so what do I do? Well, let me tell you a little story. I have two different nurses. One of them just loves our prayer sessions. I mean, she talks about it. She's excited. When I get there, she's there to remind me right away. The other one just didn't seem to really care. I mean, she didn't say anything negative, but I could tell she really just didn't seem, didn't seem into it and was open that she wasn't a Christian. She was polite, but didn't seem really into our prayer sessions. One night, that nurse came to work, and she looked completely stressed out, completely. And she has a lot of reason to be stressed. She has three children. She and her husband just foreclosed on their house. They now live with her in-laws, and financial things are getting so tight, they're going to be declaring bankruptcy. So she, we had a bit of a lull in patience. She comes to my room. She says, Dr. Nelson, I am so stressed, and I've got to get an outlet. What do you think about journaling? And I said, journaling's great. And for the next 15 minutes, I completely went off about how wonderful journaling is, and I talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked about journaling. And then we got busy with patients. That night, as I was praying, it suddenly hit me that I'd missed this great opportunity to meet her needs and witness. 
Instead, I'd blown it just talking about journaling. Well, I kind of argued with God. I was like, God, I don't want to turn her off. If I talked about praying, she probably wouldn't be interested because she's told me she's not a Christian, so I, I wouldn't want to offend her, and we kind of got in this little argument. Well, a few days later, this MA comes to me. We had a bit of a lull in patience, and she tells me, you know, Dr. Nelson, I just wanted to tell you, I actually really appreciate our prayers before clinic. I didn't grow up praying. My parents never attended church, and I'd really kind of like to learn how to pray. In fact, Dr. Nelson, do you remember the night I came to you and I was completely stressed out and we talked about journaling? Well, on my way to work that night, I was so stressed, and I remembered how you pray before clinic, and I always feel a little better after you pray. So I actually said my very first prayer on my way to work that night. I felt about this big. I'm thankful God gave me an opportunity to redeem myself, or sorry, not myself, but redeem the time, but I realized I needed to carry an the goal to the next level and make another goal. So I'm happy to tell you that I'm able to share Bible story CDs with this nurse. She's anxious to learn about the Bible. I'm also sharing some financial peace seminars with her. In addition, with the rest of my staff, I've discovered the Ebola and ISIS crisis have been great opportunities to share. We've been reading Psalms like Psalm 91. Um, we've also had some discussions about Bible prophecy, and I've been able to actually share links with them so they can learn about Bible prophecy for themselves. So I'm really excited about taking it to the next level, and we'll see where it goes. So Ebola is good for something. You flip to the next slide, isn't it? There you go. So what about surgery? How many of uh, you in the audience do surgery in the operating room? Okay, well, this will be the short part of the talk then, I guess. Uh, not too many... <laughs> Those of you who do know, you have very limited control over the system. There are so many systems of care around you, you just kind of go along. My goal that I set was to pray with 100% of the patients who wanted it before surgery. And that brings me to kind of a funny story. I'll tell on myself, I guess. It's, um, it's a little humiliating in retrospect, I suppose. But um, So remember all those goals I had last time that I set just starting out in practice? Well, this was one of them. I want to pray with 100% of my patients who, you know, before surgery who wanted. And that first week, I still remember my very first patient. He came in and he had hemorrhoids, just like all of my patients have hemorrhoids. <laughs> and um, so, I, you know, I examined him, did that thing. I stepped out, let him get dressed. I'm coming back in to tell him that he needs an operation for his hemorrhoids because they're so big, all the fiber in the world isn't going to cure him. So... I know now, in retrospect, it, it, I'm sure this is the way it came across to him. I, I walk back into the room and, you have hemorrhoids. Let us pray. <laughs> and he politely declined. Can you believe it? And, um, well, the rest of that week, my next patient had hemorrhoids, too. And they declined prayer as well. And, well, my first week was, I, I changed my system, we'll put it that way. What works a lot better, I've discovered, through a little trial and error, I have a prehabilitation sheet for surgery. Any patient who's going to have an elective operation, uh, especially big abdominal operations, I have a whole sheet that I give them, talks about optimizing their outcomes. Talk about diet, talk about exercise, 
using an incentive spirometer pre-op, try to decrease their risk of uh, nosocomial pneumonias. Uh, we talk about a few other things, and then we talk about stress reduction. And one of the things I offer them as far as stress reduction goes is, I mean, I'm happy to pray with you before surgery uh, if that's something that would be helpful for you. I believe in prayer, and, I, and most of my patients in Tennessee are Christian, and they are very happy to have me pray with them. Um, in the operating room, of course, the patient's asleep, the way I like them. And uh, <laughs> so you can't really witness to the patient. I'm known as the doctor who only listens to classical music in the OR. I don't know what statement that makes to people, but I just I can't handle some of the other music that goes on in there. And it's a great time to have spiritual discussions with staff. This is also kind of funny. What are we studying in Sabbath school right now? Book of James. That's right. So it's just... Uh, recently here that we were starting out in the book of James about letting patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And, um, well, Rachel can tell you maybe that's the challenge of mine. I don't know. She can speak for me, I guess. And um, I, I was just sharing with some, my, the scrub tech and the, uh, the circulator that, you know, I, I shared the Bible text, and you know, I want to be a more patient person. And they got this funny look in their face, and they said, Really, Dr. Nelson? We can help you with that. <laughs> That's what they said. And um, so it's a great time for spiritual discussions with staff. This is an area I need to work on. Post-op, I need to develop pathways of spiritual care more. I have pathways for physical care for the vast majority of my patients. But I know that I have room for improvement here. Even patients who didn't decide to quit smoking, if they have a major abdominal operation, they're stuck in the hospital four or five days, they just quit smoking. Why not help them continue to quit smoking for the rest of their life? Uh, I need to improve spiritual interventions that I give to my patients in the immediate post-operative period. And in my case, clinical follow-up is fairly limited, especially for anorectal patients. I see them pre-op, I see them in the operating room, and I usually see them only once post-op. But that's a chance to reinforce whatever changes they've made and re, uh, reinforce the need for them to come to dinner with the doctor or any other uh, interventions that we've gone over with them. As you've probably gathered from what Rachel and I have been sharing, the way our practices are set up, our goal is to extend our friendship and our relationship with our patients outside of our clinical practice because our clinical practice is fairly brief. What we need to do is invite them to programs like financial planning seminars, like dinner with a doctor, other programs outside of our clinical setting so that we can form longer-term relationships with them. Um, and so that's our goal. And dinner with a doctor and Bible studies are two of those. Finally, in conclusion, um, there was a wise surgeon um, I know you've all heard this and applied it to your own settings, who was once asked how it was he always seemed to make the good decision, the right decision, whether it was in the office or in the operating room. He made the right decision. And his answer was experience. Well, then the next question is how do you get experience, and how do you get experience? By making lots of bad decisions, or I heard stupid decisions here as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And Rachel and I have done the same thing. Rachel's going to briefly share our story and some of the complications that we've um, we if, had along the way. If you want our full story, um, go to the Audioverse website, Amen 2012. Um, the talk I gave, I actually told our full story. 
But basically, gaining experience for us was very difficult. And as we discovered, most of the time, a system flaw isn't revealed until a period of crisis. As medical students, Eric and I thought we were the gift, God's gift, to the medical mission community. We were actively giving Bible studies. We were sharing with patients. In general, we thought we were doing a great job of witnessing. But unfortunately, both of us had major flaws that we didn't realize we had. We weren't aware of them. And we really had smooth sailing through med school. We were both AOA. We were both top of our class. Eric wanted urology. I wanted dermatology. And we thought we were doing great. Then neither of us matched. Not at all. And then I did my backup plan, which was pediatrics. Eric had no backup plan, so he applied for urology again and didn't match. And he applied for it again and didn't match. Those were really tough, depressing times for both of us. And to make things worse, we both started getting bad evaluations about our interpersonal skills. Now, the first few evaluations, we thought, well, we're just getting persecuted for righteousness sake. <laughs> and what we thought. But when you get three, four, five different people all saying the same thing, we begin to realize maybe we were the problem, not the evaluator. So we had a period of real deep depression as we realized we had some basic interpersonal skills to develop. Basic. So we started reading Ministry of Healing in Contact with Others. That's a great chapter. We read it many, many times. We had a few sessions with a psychologist. We had some trusted friends that we talked with, and we spent hours in prayer with God, and we slowly began to see our major blind spots. And we discovered that complications can teach you if you're willing to learn from them. I pray we did, and I pray we continue to. Everyone is going to have some complications. To err is human. Speaking of which, let's finish our story by talking about the healthcare system again. Those of you who are familiar with the Two Eras Human Institute of Medicine report, remember it came out in 1999. This is the first paragraph from it. Healthcare in the United States is not as safe as it should be. At least 44,000 people and perhaps as many as 98,000 people die in hospitals each year as a result of medical errors that could have been prevented. Preventable medical errors in hospitals exceed attributable deaths to such feared threats as motor vehicle wrecks, breast cancer, and AIDS. I'm sure most of you remember the big public outcry that came along with this Institute of Medicine report. And those of you who remember it, remember the main point of this report was the reason that patients unnecessarily die in hospitals had nothing to do with bad doctors, poor training, poor facilities, purposely abusive physicians who are trying to help their patients die. It's none of that. The whole reason that patients unnecessarily die is systems issues, poorly designed systems of care that could be improved. Well, as in the medical, what about the spiritual? There are thousands upon thousands dead in trespasses and sins. Thousands are dying 
unwarned and unconverted, who will render an account for these souls? God calls for workers who will labor for those who know not the truth, who will rescue those who are out of the fold. Thousands pass through our office every day who are unwarned and unconverted. And it is a systems issue that needs to be addressed. I hope that we can learn some lessons from the ACGME. We need to approach this in a systematic manner. Sometimes I think that in the name of waiting for the Holy Spirit to speak to us, we just kind of ignore the patients until there's one that's so obvious that, yeah, we have to pray with them or we have to reach out to them. Friends, we need to put in place systems of care that encourage us, the healthcare providers, to do the right thing every single time. I know we want to, but we haven't put the time into systematically planning to. Our challenge to you today is very simple. Put as much time and effort into your systems of spiritual care as you do to, into your systems of medical care. The stakes are higher, as much higher as heaven is higher than the earth. And the rewards are much greater, as much greater as an eternal reward is compared to anything that this earth has to offer. Systems of care, spiritual systems of care. Let's pray together. Dear God, I ask that each person here will, in a very practical way, Consider what the worldly children of this generation have to teach us about spiritual care. Help us to put more time and effort into things that really matter compared to those who don't really understand what really matters and how much time and effort they put into their systems of medical care. Help our eyes to be open to see things as they really are Help us to set very clear goals for ourselves. Help us to evaluate ourselves. Do we really have the level of competence that you expect for us as medical missionaries? We thank you for this time together, and we thank you for this conference that can give us time to think about these matters. And I ask that each person here will, because of our time together, make changes that will result in souls saved for your kingdom. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.